Hello and welcome to another episode of Best of the Left Podcast. Today we have clips from Ring of Fire, The Daily Show, The Young Turks, Sam Cedar, an Eisenhower speech, Bill Maher, and Rachel Maddow. Next week, the House of Representatives will be interviewing General David Petraeus once again to evaluate just how successful Bush's troop surge has really been. Joining me now to talk about this is Congressman Adam Smith from Washington. He serves on the House Armed Services Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He is also the chair on Armed Services of the Terrorism, Unconventional Threats, and Capabilities Subcommittee. Congressman Adam Smith, welcome to Ring of Fire. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, I, I know which Washington you prefer. Yeah. Uh, the one, the one on the better coast. Uh, yeah, better it, weather, mountains, water, all kinds of cool stuff. Plus, you know, it's where I grew up. So. Well, well, you are uh, you are back to work this week, and a lot of things are happening after this recess. Uh, yeah. First among them that that people are focusing on is uh, General David Petraeus returning uh, to make another report about the progress in Iraq. What do you expect him to say, and what's your view of where we are today? Well, I expect him to say, you know, things not terribly different than what he said um, last September. You know, the surge is working. It needs more time. You know, we can't draw down now um, because if we did, disaster would strike. Um, I think that's a pretty good summary of what, what he's going to say. And, you know, I think the many, many problems, I think, with our approach in Iraq right now, but one of the things that I'm going to focus on is it's, it's General Petraeus' position and the Bush administration position that the surge has been a spectacular success, number one. And number two, if we were to draw down by even a brigade or two from where we're at right now, Iraq would descend into violent chaos. And the point I want to start with is it's not possible for both of those statements to be true. Right. Um, it, 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 it's come to the place now where if we, it, it, I believe uh, the president said the other day that because there is more violence, it's somehow proof that things are working. Right. And, and at the same time, when there was less violence, well, that's proof that things right. are working. How, you, can't, you can't reconcile those contradictions. You cannot. So we need to take a step, because in the president's mind, he's still viewing this as we are in Iraq fighting al-Qaeda and we will win or we will lose. And he's really wrong on both fronts. Um, certainly there is an aspect of what we're doing in Iraq that involves some people who have chosen, at least for the time being, to be affiliated with Iraq. But the larger point is we are in Iraq occupying a nation that is engaged in a power struggle. And we saw this just last week where, in essence, we had our troops choosing sides in a Shiite civil war, which is bad enough. But the side that we were choosing was the one that is most closely allied with Iran. Mm -hmm. And how on earth is that in our national security interests? And these are questions that you know, General Petraeus and the Bush administration are completely unwilling to address. It appears that you can't tell the players without a scorecard, and my recollection is John McCain didn't have a scorecard right. when, he, when he was there last week. And this is, this is part of the problem. Again, if, if we go back to the, the beginning of the surge... The idea was that this had to be defined by certain measurements, and the president came to the country, made a speech, and had specific criteria yep. by which the surge could be defined as a success. What was the scorecard? Had it even reached half of those criteria? No, it has not, because the main focus was on political reconciliation. 
Um, you know, the president and General Petraeus both sort of admitted that there's no long-term military solution here. It's not simply a matter of our military, you know, using its might to force a solution, or so they said. Um, that the goal here was to buy time for a political solution. Um, and, you know, we have gone in and done that, and there has been no political solution. And ultimately, the argument that I think we have to make, and by we, I mean those people who are advocating for an end of the occupation, and at least, you know, at least the beginning of the withdrawal of our troops, um, is that the U.S. military cannot stabilize Iraq, that our occupation has destabilizing aspects to it, um, as well as the advantages and security that, that we can occasionally see, and that if our occupation is permanent, there's no, there's no stability, there's no permanent solution there, so we have to begin to draw down. We're talking with Congressman Adam Smith of Washington. He's a Democrat. He serves on the House Armed Services Committee. Uh, Congressman, uh, General Petraeus will be speaking before your committee, I assume, or is it a joint uh, hearing, or will it be... Actually, it's two separate. I'm on both committees, so I'll, I'll get two bites at the apple. Two bites I, at the apple. I, also, the can... Foreign Affairs Committee as well, right? Yes, he's Armed Services in the morning, Foreign Affairs. Foreign Affairs in the afternoon, assuming I have nothing else to do that day. <laughs> well, well I, I don't want to tip your hand in case he's listening, but right. what what do you intend to ask him? Well, it's tough. I mean, it's five minutes, and the general is very smart and very good at running out the clock. Uh, basically, you know, he starts answering a question and goes off in whatever direction he wants to and more or less dares you to interrupt a four-star general, mm-hmm. um, which, which I did last time and but still didn't, didn't get an answer exactly to what I was asking then. You know, there's so many di- different questions, but the one that I want to try to focus on is exactly what it is that we are trying to accomplish. Um, now, I know that, that, that stability is the goal, and certainly we could go down the long argument that I started a minute ago as to whether or not you know, a foreign occupying force can truly stabilize Iraq. But the main focus, I want to ask him that, that question that I, that I led off with. You know, we're choosing, choosing sides in the Shiite civil war. Um, and it's not that you know the, there were militias active in Basra that we had to crush. It's that there were militias active in Basra that Maliki didn't like, so he wanted his militias to have greater authority. Um, is a better way to describe it. How is it in the national security interest of the United States to fight and die to prop up the Maliki government, which will be a close ally of Iran? And given that, you know, what's our alternative? Um, have we even thought about that as a problem? Well, let me ask you that question. Uh, let's turn it around. Sure. What is what is our alternative? Uh, obviously, so many things have floated. One of the disappointments, uh, I think, that has been well-reported and is palpable is that many people who voted for Democrats in the House and Senate returning majorities in 2006 right. felt that that alternative should already be in place. Obviously, it's been very difficult without bigger majorities. But that said... If you had that power right now to implement an alternative, what would it be, Congressman? Well, it's, it's not a hypothetical. Um, a year ago, almost exactly, I think it was in March, the House and the Senate passed a timeline for withdrawal to begin to draw down our occupation, and whatever forces would be left would be left specifically to fight al-Qaeda and the counterterrorism. That is the alternative. It is the alternative that the Democratic Congress passed and the President vetoed. Um, and I am somewhat frustrated that there has been so much fire turned on Democrats, uh, the overwhelming majority of which, except for a handful, actually agree that we ought to withdraw, have voted to withdraw. 
um, and have been thwarted by the president, and Republicans unwilling to override him. So that is the clear alternative plan. Now, the, the challenge that we have in implementing that plan is they will always come back and say, gosh, you know, if we draw down Iraq, we'll descend into chaos. Basically, they're, they're throwing out, you know, worst-case hypothetical scenarios is arguing against us. And look, whether we draw down or not, there's going to be a period of instability in Iraq. Um, you know, we cannot deny that. But the enormous cost of our continued occupation added to the fact that it is not solving the problem, I think, are used for that timeline for withdrawal, um, to, to draw down our forces, have them focus on al-Qaeda, as we do in, gosh, you know, dozens of other countries. Um, as we've learned in, in northwest Pakistan, you know, we're hitting al-Qaeda targets. Um, we're hitting al-Qaeda targets in Somalia. We're hitting al-Qaeda targets in a bunch of places where we don't have 150,000 U.S. troops occupying a country and trying to referee a civil war. And I think that is the larger national security argument that we have to make. But plainly, we're not going to see anything happen like that as long as George Bush is president. Correct. Okay. At this point, you know, we push that as hard as we possibly could. And either, you know, the president had to change his mind, that didn't happen, or the Republicans had to live up to their rhetoric of a year ago when they said they didn't support, you know, the Iraq policy. Many of them were expressing angst and concern. None of them, or maybe two of them, uh, have actually voted uh, in a way that, that backs up the, the, those expressions of concern. So, but that doesn't mean that we, can't, we shouldn't keep pushing the issue. Um, you know, I think as we head into the presidential campaign, you know, we have to make it clear what alternative is. We have to counter their arguments. We can't let them control the narrative on this by basically saying, you know, by basically overstating how good things are right now and also overstating the chaos that would happen if we withdrew even a brigade or two. The, the committee will stand in recess and the police clear the people who are talking back there. Could it be three months? Sorry, again, it, it is one. Could, can you, if you could please, we're asking, we're asking the audience, if you could bring the, the gentleman up. Our country's men and women in uniform have done a magnificent job in the most complex and challenging environment imaginable. All Americans should be very proud of their sons and daughters serving in Iraq today. Since the war in Vietnam started And here we are six years after bombing Afghanistan looking for Osama Bin Laden And he's still dropping videos every so often Next stop operation Iraqi freedom and our nation Still bleeding from that And who's eating off that? None other than our born again leader Mr. X crackhead of the pack And that's a fact do to read and then you'll see we've all been duped It's time to bring home the troops But it's up to you You can make it happen if you start taking action Asking questions instead of taking directions And start attacking the system It's been a 
attacking these innocent victims ever since its inception. A nation of killers since the beginning when we was raping and pillaging so-called Indians and taking Africans out their villages and filling them up in boats. And I hope for the sake of the children that we won't continue driving this road. It's getting lonely, boys. We told you once, told you twice, told you angry, told you nice. How many different ways do we gotta say that we don't support this war? And so on and so forth, yelling till I'm hoarse. Of course, we support the troops, but not the use of excessive force. It's time to bring them home like Manny would run a zone. How many got friends and family members that's dead and gone? I got family Jimmy Ron, and I'm not trying to see the next round of bombs dropped on my mom's mom. So the rest of y'all go on and crank that soldier boy But I'll be on some real shit, hope y'all feel it Cause I speak the true soldier boy Left his home cause he had nothing to call his own Couldn't afford no college loan Now we overseas feeling so alone The truth, bring back that soldier boy 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 Soldier boy went to sea Tried to be all he could be But act like you suit man Can sit you down like Chris Freeze Bring back that soldier boy 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 Soldier boys on the clock Watch them lean, watch them drop Someone make the bleeding stop Time for us to leave it rock Last September one General David Petraeus Went before our very Congress To explain why our troops Not only had to stay in Iraq But why we needed a surge of More than 30,000 troops a premature drawdown of our forces would likely have devastating consequences. The place was a nightmare, a hole. <laughs> we needed to surge, we could not leave. And so yesterday, the general arrived back in Washington, D.C. to deliver the good news born of the surge's success. Withdrawing too many forces too quickly could jeopardize the progress of the past year. We can't leave! <laughs> Not when it's going so well. <laughs> For more catch $22 billion every month logic, we visit our apparently semi-regular segment. I reckon it's the truth, 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 it's the truth. I reckon it's the truth. It's... It's what Falco would have wanted. <laughs> General Dave Petraeus and United States Ambassador to Iraq Ryan Crocker addressed the Senate Armed Services Committee armed with a full arsenal of visual aids, irrefutable evidence of success, the bars of victory graph, the declining death rate graph that looks ominously like someone actually dying, and this appears to have something to do with a mitochondrion and cell division. Uh, <laughs> And of course, the miraculous U.S. expenditure chart that somehow takes a 90-degree turn upon extrapolation. Miraculously. Act now, America. At these prices, we can't afford not to be in this war. So, but uh, the important thing is, the graph, literally, it showed expenditures going up, and the projection was this. Whoop. No reason. But graphics, of course, were not the only metric of improvement. Before the surge, Iraq, as you know, was on the verge of a civil war. But since? Now listen to their problems. 
Terrorists, insurgents, militia extremists, and criminal gangs pose significant threats. Insufficient Iraqi governmental capacity, lingering sectarian mistrust, corruption, violence notwithstanding, Iraq's ethno-sectarian competition in many areas is now taking place more through debate. Ethno-sectarian competition. <laughs> I don't want to be too hard on myself, but uh, in grade school, I was always picked last in my school's ethno-sectarian competitions. <laughs> on the plus side, it's not civil war. It's merely a word-for-word -word synonym that makes civil war sound more like a spirited game of capture the flag. <laughs> Look, let's just cut to the chase, Petraeus. When are you going to recommend force reduction? And if you could, phrase your answer in the form of a circle. When the assessment is at a point that the conditions are met to recommend reduction of forces, then that's what we would do. Okay, that's one radian. It's the assessment. We'll give you the thing. So what is the criterion for the assessment? When Iraq gets to the point that it can carry forward its further development, um, uh, without a major commitment of U.S. forces. So the troops can be withdrawn at the point when the conditions for withdrawability are met. And at what point would those conditions be met? When the conditions are met is when that point is. Oh it's all becoming clear to me now. sense now. The Iraq war has become a self-sustaining artificial life form. <laughs> it's learning. <laughs> but can it learn to love? This is Jake from the Young Turks. You're listening to the best of the left. But there's a lot more Young Turks at our website, theyoungturks.com. Please check out our daily video clips and our freewheeling rolling post-game show where we talk about politics and cover other fun subjects. And if that's not enough, you can always subscribe to the Young Turks podcast for the complete show. Thanks for listening. Okay, just calm down, okay? The role of the senators is supposed to be to question the military leaders and not to bow down to them. Okay, now have they done some questioning? Yes, they have. You know, Carl Levin has said in forceful terms, "It appears that you're, uh, you know, leading us into a commitment that is open-ended and has no end in sight." Okay, so nice job by Levin on that on those grounds. But overall. The whole spirit of the conversation has been not nearly challenging enough of Ambassador Crocker, who you see on your screen right there, and, uh, and General Petraeus. Those are the two main people that are uh, testifying today. 
they need to get in their face and say, no, 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 no. Wait a minute. You keep telling me we're making progress. We're over five years into this war. The Iraqi government hasn't met almost any of the benchmarks that you set. When are you ever going to accomplish the actual goals? The actual goals. They are far, far too polite. I mean, in the midst of their genuflecting and their bows and their, you know, okay, thank you, your majesty, for bestowing your glorious presence upon us. Any decent question is completely lost. Plus, they let him get away with lie after lie. I'm telling you now, okay? General Petraeus and, and Ambassador Crocker, both of them, throughout the day, talking about, oh, Iran, I'll tell you, they're the real problem. And they're causing all this mess down in Basra. First of all, that's not true. And actually, your other testimony indicates it's not true. You admit that actually it was the prime minister who started that fight. It was our guy, El Maliki, who went and picked the fight in Basra. Now, ironically, you happen to be right that Iran is causing the problem because Maliki is beholden to Iran. The prime minister of Iraq is in Iran's back pocket. Do any of the senators know what's happening? Do any of them? I get so discouraged. Do, can some senator go up there and say, hey, wait a minute. Now, Ambassador Crocker, you just said Iran is causing the problems, etc., etc. But do you acknowledge that, in fact, the leading party in Iraq uh, and the second leading party, Dawa, which is where from the prime minister is from, the ones we're backing are, have the backing of Iran more than any other party. That Iran has given them aid and comfort and money much more than the Sadr, uh, Sadr's Mahdi army that you're talking about here. Please acknowledge that. Nobody's done it, of course. Yeah. Two things. Number one, do you think they know this many things? Because it's kind of been mm-hmm. said before how they don't like getting so deep into things. Some, some senators don't like reading everything or necessarily knowing everything about things. There's certain that know a lot, like, you know, Joe Biden knows a lot about the Middle East and, and relations and things like that. Some just don't know, number one. Number two, now, maybe if some of them do know to a certain extent, are they afraid, to what, to what point do you think they're afraid to look like going back to the volatile, toxic uh, General Betrayus thing again? Because I, I feel like that's maybe still dancing in the back of some people's heads. JR, two good points. They're both exactly right, and they're both the problem. Okay, one... Uh, problem is most of the senators don't know what the hell's going on. They don't. You think, you think Democrats know better than the Republicans? Republicans are just fed lies, and they don't think about it. They don't bother doing the research. They just spew out the lies. We've got a, one from uh, Senator Cornyn from Texas uh, that we'll share with you in a little bit, right? But, it, you know, you hope that the Democrats are better informed, but there's one or two of them that every once in a while you'll be like, oh, look at that, Senator Wyden, nice question. Senator... Uh, you know, White House, nice question. Senator Feingold, of course, nice question every once in a while, right? But generally, they don't know who's who in Iraq either. So uh, am I convinced that we got enough Democratic senators up there who know that the Mahdi army is nationalist and not connected to Iran nearly as much as the ones we're backing? No, I'm not convinced of that at all. If I was convinced of that, I'd be even angrier at them for not bringing that up when it's so freaking obvious, Right? Shouldn't someone on their staff know? Shouldn't they get that to the senator? Don't you think that might be relevant information they'd want to question Petraeus and Crocker on, especially as they let them run roughshod over the truth, right? So that's part of it. But the second part of it is just as important. Even if they 
do know that or did know that, they'd still be afraid to say it to them because you know what you got to say? Hey, I'm sorry, Ambassador Crocker, uh, but you're cooking up a pie that is full of shit, okay? And you're trying to serve it to the American people because you're just talking about how, because you got to be confident when you go in there, okay? You can't just, you know what they're going to do because the Republicans will do this and the conservatives and the right-wing media, they'll be like, how dare you? How would you know better than the legendary Ambassador Crocker? You know, Barry McCaffrey on MSNBC earlier today called Ambassador Crocker a national treasure. Oh, please. McCaffrey, please. Come on. But when you go after these guys, if you do, which of course they're scared to death of doing because they're going to get accused of being, you know, unpatriotic, you got to come correct. So when you say Ambassador Crocker or General Petraeus, you talk about Saudi uh, Sadr's Mahdi army being uh, tied to Iran, but isn't it true that the Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq, that party, the major party in Iraq, now called the Supreme Islamic Iraqi Council, and the Dawah party are more tied to Iran, that they were trained in Iran, the Badr organization, which is their military uh, and militia group, was trained in Iran, got money from Iran, a lot more so than the Sadr's group. Isn't that true? and then wait for his response, but they're afraid, they're afraid. Look, fear oozes from them. I'm watching Senator Clinton's, I caught her intro and I caught her last couple of questions, to be honest, okay? I wish I'd seen the whole thing, but uh, having watched what I did, some of the questions aren't bad, and this is generally true of a lot of the Democrats, some of the questions aren't bad. You watch them and you go, okay, that's kind of the right question. But they ask them in such a weak way that you lose it. That and then they don't challenge Petraeus. And that Petraeus says, you know, they're like, hey, is there there seems to be no end to this. And Petraeus comes back with a BS answer of, well, we're, you know, seeing that the violence is going down and we're achieving our goals and we've, you know, made some uh, political headway and we're making progress, right? And then they back down. When they should be like, no, General Petraeus, I don't accept what you're saying. You told me the same thing six months ago. And we're no closer to Iraqi stability and no closer to leaving. I don't know if you know this, General Petraeus, but our objective is to leave. What are your plans for us to leave? Show them right now. Right now to me, General Petraeus. We're here in front of the thing. And we have 4,000 Americans die. And since you last came here, we had 700 more die. We've had over 30,000 wounded. I've spent $2 billion of American taxpayers' money on your plan, and you still can't show me a plan on how we're going to leave Iraq, and how you're going to get this famed success. Because, General Petraeus, isn't it true that you don't have a plan to leave Iraq? Somebody get me in the Senate. (laughs) I mean, come on, man. Have some balls. Ask the right questions. General Petraeus, isn't it true that you don't have a plan? He didn't even say you don't have a plan. It says it's, this, your plan seems to have no end. And that was the toughest question. I'm trying to give them as much credit as possible. <sighs> the thing is, you know, sometimes we blame the media. And I, I, I wrote a piece that's on our website about how General Petraeus is helping Iran, right? And he is, because we've picked sides among the different Shiite militias that are fighting. And we picked a side that is more closely tied to Iran. And Washington Post had a terrific article explaining not only are they more tied to Iran, but the party we're backing wants to split Iraq into three. 
which I actually don't even think that's that bad an idea. But you know what? Uh, the Bush administration claims they're adamantly against that. But if you're adamantly against splitting the country into three, why are you backing the party who wants to split the country into three? The people who want to keep uh, Iraq united the most is Muqtada al-Sadr and the Mahdi army. Now you might not agree with a lot of the other positions or their, some of their heinous acts, but they do want to keep the country unified. Now, as I'm doing research for that article, I, I went through so many different uh, pieces written in Newsweek, Washington Post, New York Times, uh, English newspapers, etc., 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 to the point where I got, I said, you know what? Actually, the media has done an okay job of covering this, and I was trying to figure out what's the problem because here it is. I mean, I didn't make the information up. I, I'm not in Iraq. I don't know. I, I'm trusting the reporters on the ground, and there are some good reporters that bring us back some good information that ex- explain to us who's on the side of Iran, who's not, who's more nationalist, etc., etc., right? And I'm trying to see where the problem breaks down, right? Because we do have the information in the press. And here's where the problem breaks down. These stories get you know, printed, they run, and they don't run as major headlines most of the time. The piece on Washington Post was fairly well featured, right? But the others were you know, buried in the middle of Newsweek, in the middle of New York Times, etc., t- sometimes towards the end. Um, it is the job of the Democrats to find these pieces and go, oh, look at that, that's really interesting. That doesn't help Bush administration propaganda. In fact, it hurts it a lot because Bush administration propaganda is wrong. Now, if I'm an opposing political party, I might want to make a big deal out of this. On the other hand, if I'm um, an incompetent opposing party who spends most of their time bowing down to the administration while calling them the worst ever, I find that piece of information, I go, okay, file it in the circular file, put it in the garbage, and don't make a big deal out of it. And so where is the battle lost, and why does the media have some culpability in this? It's the Democrats' fault for not making a big deal out of the things that are true and that help them. And it's Republicans who are so good at taking whatever small morsels might be to their advantage and blowing them up as if it's the greatest thing that ever happened. Violence went down to early 2006 levels because of the surge. Wow, we created miracles. Isn't the Iraq war going awesome? And they won because they got the media to print that every single day. Okay, That tiny, tiny little victory, if you can call it that, that they had. Mr. Ambassador, is Al-Qaeda a greater threat to U.S. interest in Iraq or in the Afghan-Pakistan border region? Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, Al-Qaeda is a strategic threat to the United States uh, wherever it is. In, in my Where is most of it? Uh, if you could take it out. You had a choice. The Lord Almighty came down, sat in the middle of the table there and said, Mr. Ambassador, you can eliminate every al-Qaeda source in Afghanistan and Pakistan or every al-Qaeda personnel in Iraq. Which would you pick? 
Well, given the progress that has been made against al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, the uh, significant decrease in its uh, capabilities, the fact that it is solidly on the defensive and not in a position uh, as far Which as I Which would you pick, judge, Mr. Ambassador? Uh, I would therefore pick uh, al-Qaeda in the Pakistan-Afghanistan border area. And that would be a smart choice. So, because of all the massive progress we have made in opening up Iraq to al-Qaeda and then getting rid of al-Qaeda there, the central front in the war on terror, according to Ambassador Krakow, is in fact not in Iraq, but in western Pakistan, eastern Afghanistan. I am just absolutely shocked. Sam Cedar in for the goddess of radio. It is 24 past the hour. The number is 866-303-2270. In a moment, in our next segment, Christy Harvey will be joining me. Senator Barbara Boxer will be joining us uh, later in this program to talk about um, uh, these uh, General Petraeus hearings. And uh, she had a great uh, question as well regarding Iran, trying to knock them off their script, which, of course, is that... um, and, and there you have Biden do it. Now, in fact, I would even say to Biden, if I was Biden, I would even follow that up since, since that was so successful in getting Krakow to admit that right now the central war on terrorism or terror is in fact not in Iraq. I would have said, what day over the past five years was the central war on terror in Iraq? At what point did the 1,000 foreigners out of literally 22 million people in Iraq. At what point were they the central front on the war on terror? At what point has there been even a shred of evidence that there are any al-Qaeda in Iraq that are in fact international terrorists? And by that I mean, have they planned any bombings? Have they executed any bombings outside of Iraq? Ahmadinejad was the first national leader to be given a state reception by Iraq's government. Iraq President Talibani and Ahmadinejad held hands as they inspected a guard of honor while a brass band played brisk British marching tunes. Children presented the Iranian with flowers. Members of Iraq's cabinet lined up to greet him, some kissing him on both cheeks. So it's not a question about the militias out there. I'm saying after all we have done, The Iraqi government kisses the Iranian leader, and our president has to sneak into the country. I I don't understand it. We are back. Sam Cedar in for Randy Rhodes on the phone. It's a pleasure to welcome to the program Senator Barbara Boxer from California. Senator Boxer, thank you for joining me. Oh, it's nice to be with you, Sam. Uh, Senator Boxer, I thought that you had uh, a, a, some great questions for uh, Ambassador Crocker and General Petraeus yesterday at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Thank you. Uh, you were getting to the point that they are beginning, we're starting to hear this drumbeat that Iran is the problem in Iraq. Yet, uh, the fact of the matter is, is that the people we're fighting alongside, the Iraqi government, the Dawa Party, the Supreme Council of Islamic Revolution... These are all also backed by the Iranians and perhaps have even more relationships to Iran than even the Mahdi army does. Yes. And, you know, as this, this whole drumbeat comes from the neocons again to, 
to maybe, you know, to, to be more bellicose toward Iran, uh, they, they overlook the fact that Iraq uh, welcomes Iran and that they look at them as a friend. So what is going on here? I mean, if, you, if you're angry at Iran, there's lots of reasons to be angry at Iran. Uh, don't you think you ought to take it up with uh, the people we're giving $12 billion a month to, namely the Iraqi government, and talk to them about it and figure out what the heck is going on here? I mean, it seems to me, to a certain extent, and I'd like your opinion on this, but in some ways... We are never going to uh, uh, diminish Iranian influence in Iraq. That ship has sailed when right. we invaded and occupied Iraq. You're exactly right. I mean, we did, you know, uh, for Iran what they could never do for themselves in that long war uh, with Saddam Hussein. So we got rid of uh, Saddam Hussein, and they're benefiting. And what got me frustrated yesterday at one point, I said, I give up, because you can't even get the Bush administration people to admit that Iran has gained ground as a result mm -hmm. of this disastrous policy. And that was what I was trying to get at. And at one point, I think it was uh, Senator Jack Reed asked, uh, asked uh, the ambassador and the general uh, if, if there are other groups associated with Iran uh, that were involved in the fighting, and uh, the ambassador said uh, Iraqi Hezbollah, which has no relationship to Lebanese Hezbollah, it just happens to be uh, an Arab word. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it turns out I spoke to uh, uh, Juan Cole, one of the, the country's premier Shiite uh, Muslim experts, that Iraqi Hezbollah is part of the Barter Brigades, is part of the Supreme Council of Islamic Revolution, which is part of the Iraqi government. God. And so... We're, we're in this situation where we're fighting alongside people who are actually probably, the barter brigades were invented in Iran. Yes. And we are fighting alongside them. And so this ship has sailed. Iranian influence is all over there. And I want to ask you, do you think because Iran already enjoys such an entree, so much so that, you, as you mentioned, uh, Ahmadinejad can be greeted as a, as a dignitary, whereas George Bush has to sneak in the back door. Mm-hmm. Is there even a chance that if we were to leave uh, within a year that Iran would invade? There's no reason for them to. Absolutely not. They've got their friends in charge. And they've, they got the, they've got Maliki in charge. And, you know, that's, that's it. It's right there. And th that's why this whole thing is such a fiasco from day mm. one. And, and, of course, uh, you know, uh, it, is, it is draining us of $12 billion a year. What, what do you think? No, twelve billion dollars a month. You're right. A month, and and the other thing I pointed out yesterday is all the money we are paying the former insurgents to keep them quiet and the and militias and so on, Sunni and Shia, that funding that we're giving them. Uh, why isn't? Why are we paying this money? You know, it, it, it ought to be a payment that Maliki makes. We're broke. We have deficits. They've got surpluses. Uh, Carl Levin, the chairman of the Armed Services Committee, says they've got tens of billions of surplus because of the price of oil and $30 billion in, in American banks, and, and we're spending $184 million a month to, to pay off people not to shoot at us and the Iraqi government. Well, yes. I mean, we could also get them to stop shooting at us by leaving, and then we wouldn't even have to pay them. Bingo. Um, but, That's uh, for sure. Now, uh, so uh, 
as this uh, winds down to the election, and at this point, to a certain extent, there's just a certain amount of theater here because there's no way, obviously, with withdrawing and uh, and George Bush has succeeded in some respects in making this someone else's problem. Um, how how do you anticipate this is going to play out? I mean, uh, do you think that with if we can get 60 votes in the Senate uh, next year that we can begin this withdrawal from Iraq? Well, first of all, we need to have, and I want to just correct something I said. We're spending $184 million a year on these militias, not a month. We're spending $18 million a month. I wanted to clear that. I made a mistake. But here's the deal. We've got an election, and we've got three people to choose. We're going to have two. Right. One of them says we ought to be in Iraq for 100 years, and, and more of George Bush and more of the same. The other one is going to want to disengage. So that's the first thing, and that's key because that's commander-in-chief. Now, the other election we have is election for the Congress, and in the Senate, we need to get the 60 votes. And so if we can pick up, right now we have 51 votes, and we lose a couple on the war, but we hold almost all. But we pick up another four, five, six seats, we'll pick up a few Republicans, we should be able to, we should be able to do this. So it's, it's, if, if McCain is president, it isn't going to be easy, I'll tell you right now, because, you know, he could veto our legislation, and then we need 67, okay? Right. So the pre- whoever is president, this is a key moment in time here. But the American people, I hope, are seeing through this. First of all, we can't afford this war anymore, uh, and we are, our troops are hurting so bad. They are suffering so mightily, and we're stretched, and our budget is crashing. And, you know, it was interesting because Russ Feingold read a comment by Osama bin Laden, and he said he thought the best way to bring America to its knees is making her go broke on the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. I thought that was kind of interesting. Well, that was exactly uh, his experience with the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, and uh, I think... I think uh, 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 Bin Laden had actually said the same thing about Afghanistan, and when somehow uh, it managed not to happen there, it was almost as George Bush said, well, I, uh, we, we escaped that fate in Afghanistan, but I'll show you we can do it in Iraq. Well, here's what's also interesting. During the Cold War, our theory was you know, to break, to break the Soviet Union, too, by continuing to, to have this, uh, this buildup, which, of course, I didn't support it, but the fact is they did go broke at the end of the day. So now here we are in a circumstance where we have just huge deficits as far as the eye can see. You know, China's buying up all of our debt, and, you know, we, we have no suasion with them now because of that. So it's this Iraq war is such a catastrophe. There are three huge things you can do to help support the show, but they only take a few seconds. Leave us a great customer review in the iTunes Music Store, dig the show on dig.com, and every month you can vote for the best of the left at podcastalley.com. Find links to all three of these most important sites on the right-hand side at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. The way chosen by the United States was plainly marked by a few clear precepts which govern its conduct in world affairs. First, No people on earth can be held as a people to be an enemy. For all humanity shares a common hunger for peace and fellowship and justice. Second, no nation's security and well-being can be lastingly achieved in isolation. 
but only in effective cooperation with fellow nations. Third, every nation's right to a form of government and an economic system of its own choosing is inalienable. Fourth, any nation's attempt to dictate to other nations their form of government is indefensible. And fifth, a nation's hope of lasting peace cannot be firmly based upon any race in armaments, but rather upon just relations and honest understanding with all other nations. In the light of these principles, the citizens of the United States define the way they propose to follow through the aftermath of, peace, of war toward true peace. This way was faithful to the spirit that inspired the United Nations to prohibit strife, to relieve tensions, to banish fears. This way was to control and to reduce armaments. This way was to allow all nations to devote their energies and resources to the great and good tasks of healing the war's wounds, of clothing and feeding and housing the needy of perfecting a just political life, of enjoying the fruits of their own toil. The Soviet government held a vastly different vision of the future. In the world of its design, security was to be found not in mutual trust and mutual aid, but in force. Huge armies, subversion, rule of neighbor nations. The goal was power superiority at all costs. Security was to be sought by denying it to all others. The result has been tragic for the world and for the Soviet Union. It has also been ironic. The amassing of Soviet power alerted free nations to a new danger of aggression. It compelled them in self-defense to spend unprecedented money and energy for armaments. It forced them to develop weapons of war now capable of inflicting instant and terrible punishment upon any aggressor. It instilled in the free nations, and let none doubt this, the unshakable conviction that as long as there persists a threat to freedom, they must, at any cost, remain armed, strong, and ready for the risk of war. It It inspired them, and let none doubt this, to attain a unity of purpose and will beyond the power of propaganda or pressure to break now or ever. There remained, however, one thing essentially unchanged and unaffected by Soviet conduct. This unchanged thing was the readiness of the free world to welcome sincerely any genuine evidence of peaceful purpose, enabling all peoples again to resume their common quest of just peace. And the free world still holds to that purpose. The free nations most solemnly and repeatedly have assured the Soviet Union that their firm association has never had any aggressive purpose whatsoever. 
Soviet leaders, however, have seemed to persuade themselves or tried to persuade their people otherwise. And so it has come to pass that the Soviet Union itself has shared and suffered the very fears it has fostered in the rest of the world. This has been the way of life, forged by eight years of fear and force. What can the world, or any nation in it, hope for if no turning is found on this dread road? The worst to be feared and the best to be expected can be simply stated. The worst is atomic war. The best would be this, a life of perpetual fear and tension, a burden of arms draining the wealth and labor of all peoples, a wasting of strength that defies the American system or the Soviet system or any system to achieve true abundance and happiness for the peoples of this earth. Every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies in the final sense, a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. This world in arms is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. The cost of one modern heavy bomber is this a modern brick school in more than 30 cities. It is two electric power plants, each serving a town of 60,000 population. It is two fine, fully equipped hospitals. It is some 50 miles of concrete pavement. We pay for a single fighter plane with a half million bushels of wheat. We pay for a single destroyer with new homes that could have housed more than 8,000 people. This is, I repeat, the best way of life to be found on the road the world has been taking. This is not a way of life at all, in any true sense. Under the cloud of threatening war, it is humanity hanging from a cross of iron. These plain and cruel truths define the peril and point the hope that come with the spring of 1953. This is one of those times in the affairs of nations when the gravest choices must be made if there is to be a turning toward a just and lasting peace. It is a moment that calls upon the governments of the world to speak their intentions with simplicity and with honesty. It calls upon them to answer the question that stirs the hearts of all sane men. Is there no other way the world may live?
But Bush, famously, before the war in Iraq, didn't know the difference between the Sunnis and the Shiites. I love his comment. I thought they were all Muslim. <laughs> and, and now he we... He was right. Don't diss him. Yeah, he was they right. Were... <laughs> That's not an idiot, Bill. <laughs> That's right. They are all Muslim. Come on. But now John McCain also doesn't know, apparently. I mean, he's made that mistake too many times. Listen, not John, knowing John, who the Sunnis and the Shiites are. John McCain is having trouble not confusing Monday and Thursday. He's 70... <laughs> he's 72 years old. Well, he, he can't... They both start with an S. He's doing good. It's fine. Well, he's, he's, uh, he's a mess. It, it's, yeah. part of this, it's part of this attitude of they're all Arabs and all the terrorist right. groups are the same, and, the, and Hezbollah and Hamas and Al-Qaeda, they're all the same. We don't have to know anything about them. We just have to go try to kill them. You know, that's the attitude not just of McCain, but I think most of the people in the administration have that attitude. And most of the people in America. Isn't that the problem? <laughs> that if the people in America don't know what is up, then when the, the leaders don't know what's up, they don't know how dumb the leaders are. The people don't know what's going on. So when you're in the dark... But, John, I mean, I'm going to defend John McCain here because I've talked to him many times and covered him, and he knows the difference. You know, I think he's, he's taken a lot of trips. The campaign's hard. He is making mistakes sometimes. But if you got him on a hearing and certainly in decision-making, I think he knows the difference, so... Well, that's good to know. I mean, that's the first time I've heard that, and I believe you because you've, you've been with him. Yeah. On the campaign trail. Not on the trail. <laughs> stop it. But, but Bush said this week uh, about Iraq, I mean, after Petraeus testified, and I've seen them play this little game before, where Bush says, you know what? <laughs> I do what my leaders on the ground tell me. But then he sort of tells his leaders on the ground what to say. Or he and then they them. say it, and he goes, well, I can't do it. I think my leader on the ground just said that. It is a little bit of a shell game, isn't it? That's totally a shell game. He had a commander out there, General Casey, who didn't want to do the surge and said to Congress he didn't need the surge. And General Casey got shuttled off into a, into a side job. And even this week, we had the head of the U.S. military, Admiral Mullins, while Petraeus is in one room saying one thing, Mullins is in another room telling the Senate, hey, our army is falling apart. We can't keep this up. That's the truth. Well, but yeah. we shouldn't expect different. I mean, it's the general's job is to... He, they work for Bush. It's not the other... Don't expect truth out of them in a public setting like that. It's, in a way, insubordination. And the president fires them, and they know, you know, they know not to do that. So I think, actually, Petraeus left himself in the best spot. I mean, he still has all the troops possible... And he's actually done a favor to the candidates because whoever is in as president now can, um, you know, decrease the number of troops. They'll have a full contingent there. Yeah, yeah. And it's not as risky for them. I mean, well, I, I'm not saying it's good for Iraq necessarily, but it's good for the political candidates and but, whoever is president next. But, but generals have an obligation to the country and to the Congress, not just to the president. And only one of them that I know of resigned uh, before because he protested the war. And, you know, they have an alternative. They don't have to salute and say yes. If they get some really dumb order, like invade Iraq, they can quit. Who are you referring to as the one? Uh, there, was a, there was a Marine two-star who was the head of operations on the Joint Staff who quietly, quietly quit. Right, different. Just before the war started. 
And, you know, he would have gone on probably to be a four-star general, but he didn't make a big thing out of it. He just said, look, I can't do this, and he quit. Very, very, very few of them did. And, well, Pe- and Petraeus wants to make it work on his watch. He's been giving this make job. make it work. You know, he said this week uh, in the hearing, he said something like, um, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. He said, uh, we're, we're not going to find the Holy Grail. Uh, we're not going to establish a Jeffersonian democracy. He said something like, uh, we're just looking for conditions where our soldiers can disengage. So, so this is what this all was for? Just, okay, we got the shit to shoe level, and maybe we can tiptoe out the door? But this Bill, is victory? You and I have talked about this before sometimes on the show. We have? Uh, yeah, we have. We, we, because I still have... You and I. A, you and I. A, a moral conflicted area, and that is I believe there's no military solution here. Most people do believe that. Uh, I believe our troops are in harm's way. We should get them out. I'm not sure how much good they're doing. But I also am conflicted with the notion of whether we supported it or not. Our country was responsible for breaking Iraq. And there is a better than 50-50 chance that if we remove en masse, there's going to be a greater amount of chaos and bloodshed than there is now. And some of that is going to be Mm. on our hands in a karmic way. Don't you feel that? Mm -hmm. We don't know that. We really don't know that. And that's the, the, the sort of shibboleth, the myth out there, that they all say, oh, you can't leave because there'll be a bloodbath. Look, if we've been there for five years and things are still, according to Petraeus, fragile, why do we think being there for another year is going to make it any better? Well, but what I, what, I'm, what I think is, and it's not going to happen... No, absolutely, you're right. But what I believe is, is more of the problem of whether we stay, add more, or get out fast is the nature of the mission is still a military mission, and it can't be. It's got to shift to some kind of negotiation mission, some kind of way that the military is overseeing a diplomatic mission that currently is not in well, they, they hate each other. They're going to kill each other. They're killing each other now. We're going to leave at some point. Why prolong this agony? Why don't we just rip off the Band-Aid? What's going to happen is going to happen. It's Allah's will. Well, the other and, thing... Yeah. And we're just prolonging the agony, I feel, for, for all of us. But Bush wants the disaster... Yes. ...to be on the next guy's watch. Exactly. That's what this is about. Yeah. But the other thing that Petraeus... The other thing that Petraeus is talking about is a political solution, and it involves the Iranians. And he is talking respectfully about uh, Sadr... Uh, he's reached out quietly and really behind the scenes. They are not calling him. You know, uh, Gates said he wouldn't call, he wouldn't arrest him, even though his militias are responsible for attacks on U.S. troops. And that's because they really see him as part of the solution. And Petraeus is very smart, and he knows that too. So I think that's yeah, the second track. We've done the really, can... we've done a really good job of handing Iran all of their exactly. strategic objectives. The situation with the Shiite militants appears to be coming to a, a full rolling boil in Iraq. Uh, you'll recall that Muqtada al-Sadr extended his Mahdi army ceasefire last month. But then yesterday, 
He called for a nationwide day of civil disobedience in Iraq uh, in protest of the arrests and imprisonment of members of the Mahdi army. Well, today, members of the Iraqi parliament who are allied with Muqtada al-Sadr, they held a press conference in Baghdad in which they read a statement from Muqtada al-Sadr to essentially formalize the call for civil disobedience and a strike and to expand it. They said, essentially, yesterday we forced the closure of some shops and businesses in some parts of Baghdad. Today, the civil disobedience campaign goes nationwide. The actual statement from al-Sadr that was read out today at that press conference said there would be three steps to the Mahdi Army's efforts to stop U.S. and Iraqi security forces from arresting and imprisoning Mahdi Army members. The first step, he said, will be sit-ins and demonstrations all over Iraq. Uh, He actually used whatever the Arabic translation is for the phrase sit-ins. And then, quote, And if the people's demands are not respected by the Iraqi government, the second step will be to declare civil revolt in Baghdad and all other provinces— the statement from Sadr then said there would be a third step, but didn't say what that would be, which, of course, is very ominous. Uh, Maktada al-Sadr also today told the field commanders of the Mahdi army in Najaf to go on maximum alert and to prepare to strike the occupiers, by which he means us, uh, U.S. forces, as well as Iraqi security forces allied with the U.S. Students allied with Maktada al-Sadr forced the closure of a university in Baghdad today, uh, Mustansaria University. Supporters of Sadr held a protest in Baghdad's Amil district. They held signs that read, no, no to governmental militias, no, no to America, and yes, yes to Iraq. There were similar protests in other Baghdad neighborhoods, including this one in Baya, uh, being reported on here by ABC's Linda Albin. A crackdown by Iraqi troops on Shiite militias in southern Iraq has prompted a call from firebrand cleric Muqtada al-Sadr for sit-ins and demonstrations like this one in Baghdad's Baya neighborhood. The Shiite cleric said the sit-ins were just a first step, threatening to declare a countrywide civil revolt if the U.S. and Iraqi security forces continue to go after his followers. Linda Albin from ABC. Also today, um, on mini-Shiite uprising day in Iraq, uh, in the southern city of Kut, the Mahdi army there full-on claimed as their territory five districts of the city of Kut. I think there are like 18 districts altogether. They said five of them are now controlled by the Mahdi army. Uh, In Sadr City, which is the huge Shiite slum in eastern Baghdad, which holds the homes of something like six million Shia, the Mahdi army there ordered all Iraqi police and soldiers to leave the streets of Sadr City. Iraqi police and soldiers said, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Goodbye, sir. And they left. Uh, U.S. and Iraqi militaries then responded by sealing off Sadr City at its borders. Once they had sealed off Sadr City, apparently there was pretty significant fighting, full-on warfare between the Mahdi army guys and the second biggest Shiite militia in Iraq, the Badr Brigade. There are police-imposed curfews today in Hilla, in Nasiriyah, in Samawa, and in Diwaniyah, technically in Kut as well, although about, as I said, about a third of Kut is controlled by the Mahdi army, so I'm not sure how well that curfew is going over. This, I, I'm going into this news in detail today because this is a big deal. Uh, I, I think this means that the Shiite ceasefire is probably over, don't you think? And I think this probably means that we're looking at some sort of, at least now, small-scale version of a nationwide Shiite uprising in Iraq. Just want to quickly thank Chris P. for producing this episode. We're still, as always, looking for great audio content to play on the show. So if you come across any lately, please...
please send it to us using the clip submission form on our website, which can be found on the Send Us Clips page of our website. So I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we will see you all again next week. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to need A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Just a fun friend.